0: if you're interested in going skinny dipping on a public beach but you aren't sure you should you're listening to the right podcast i am fort worth star telegram columnist mac engel and i'm here to give you some useful tips and advice on skinny dipping in public beaches because i just did it let me set the scene it's the second week of august And it's a serene, empty beach in Northwest Florida. Again, it's empty. This is the last night of a beach vacation. And for for the fourth straight night, I've walked down to the water to enjoy a completely dark, serene beach that is empty. Empty as in, I don't see anybody else on it. Like everybody else, I love the water and specifically its soothing sounds. It's a low season here. So again, there's not that many people, even on the beach, even in the middle of the afternoon. It's the last night of this vacation. And there's almost completely full moon over the Gulf of Mexico. So I walk out to the water to contemplate my laundry list of horrible decisions. Other than the moon, it's dark. And by dark, I'm talking like Wes Craven horror movie, Dark. I'm standing in about, um, I don't know, an ankle foot of water and I'm thinking, I should go skinny dipping. I'm 49, I should do this. No one's here, no one's gonna see me. I fight with these thoughts and this momentous decision for the better part of three minutes before I run up out of the the water, uh, across the beach to the beach house to get a towel. Now I am all in on skinny dipping. Walk back to the beach, take off my shirt, my shorts, throw my towel to a giant pile that's about 50 yards away from the ocean, which is currently in low tide. In case you've never done this before, skinny dipping does come with a level of vulnerability that takes some getting used to. Uh, It's just you, the way God intended, and the way that nobody else really wants to see you. After about my first 10 steps on the beach, I decide, you know what? I'm going to run. So I run down to the water. It's a dark beach. There's nobody on it. It's fine. I reach the water. I walk in. Not a problem because it's the Gulf of Mexico, and it basically feels like a warm bath. For about a minute, I'm enjoying my own personal giant saltwater bath. When I look down at the beach, down to the east yonder ways, and I see them, and I see the lights. There are people on this beach, a beach that has been empty every night, and these people are not that far away. It's here I need to tell you that I have a tremendous amount of respect and fear for the ocean, any ocean. I love the ocean. The ocean scares the hell out of me, and not because I'm convinced that Jaws is really a documentary. It's because I cannot see what's beneath the waterline and specifically where the sea clown exists as he is trying to kill me. So I have a decision to make right now. I can leave the water knowing that these people who I don't know may see me and my glory, or I can turn around and wade deeper into the dark water where that sea clown exists. I wait and I wait, and these four losers are walking so slowly, it's like they escaped from an assisted living facility. I'm in Florida. That's entirely possible. Now, even better, I look to the west, the other direction, and I see more people walking on the beach headed my way. Now I'm really stuck. I'm naked. I'm in the ocean. I'm on an empty beach that is not only Not empty, but is becoming an MTV Spring Break South Beach Party Scene Hub. And I'm the keynote speaker at the 2022 Middle-Aged Man Naked Convention. So I'm standing there and I'm really irritated. Now I'm mad. First it was kind of funny. Now I'm mad. Not mad at myself. This isn't my fault. I did the right thing. I did the YOLO thing. Who knows how many more days I'm going to have. So why would I deny myself the pleasure of standing in this warm water naked? I did the right thing, this is their fault. Those two groups of people who are walking forever, which leaves me crouched down here on the water so they can't see all of me and specifically my junk. I don't need any more judgment. Finally, after what felt like an hour, but was actually closer to seven or eight minutes, they walk on and I think, okay, there's enough space here that I can leave this water, get up to my towel and cover myself. That's what I think. And I have to admit, I was also at a point where I no longer really cared what they thought. I'm in Florida, and it's not as if they're going to recognize me. What are they going to do? Put it on Instagram? So I do finally leave the water, run up the beach, get to my towel, and finally security comes back to me because I have put on shorts to cover my junk. Thank God. I turn back around, and I see those groups of people, and they have moved on. But I can still see their flashlights. And their flashlights aren't white bulbs they're red bulbs and in that moment it hits me it hits me why they were on that beach with those red lights walking just so slowly because they were looking for sea turtles and you know what there's a turtle on the beach that night my guest today This latest episode is a former NFL offensive lineman who played at Penn State University before he moved on to the NFL, where he played for five seasons for the New England Patriots, Arizona Cardinals, and San Diego Chargers. He won a Super Bowl with Tom Brady. In fact, a lot of people say Tom Brady wouldn't have that Super Bowl ring without this particular guest. I'm not sure who says that, but I just did. This guy went through absolute hell to play on those seasons, and he will talk about it here on this episode. He's currently a fixture in Southern California, where he is a big part of the Big Rich, TD, and Fletch morning show in San Diego. He's funny as hell. He's bright. He's genuine. And damn it, he's pretty sexy. He is Rich Ornberger. That's a good, fine head of hair you got right there.
1: (laughs) It's hanging in there. That's all I can ask for. How old are you, Rich? Are you 40 yet? No, I'm 36, but I started going gray at 16. You started going gray at 16? I I saw my first gray hairs at 16. My mom, I guess, went gray really early, and we didn't know that because she dyed her hair our whole young life. So I I thought you had brown hair. And then she goes, oh, yeah. She's like, that's on my side. And I'm just like, well, was anybody going to tell me? So I had (laughs) a?" Develop this dazzling personality As a result of all that Well, like,
0: how much did you get made Fun of when you were a kid For having grey hair at 16?
1: Well, it didn't go completely grey It was, it really, I mean, it's taken It's time, but it, at this point I mean, I'm pretty much, like, you know I just, I just combed my hair And use some water and gel So it looks a little darker on top But I mean, I'm gray, all the way grey now But if you go back and look At pictures, like it's almost more noticeable in person than it was in pictures. Like it, it really kind of progressed slowly. So I bought just enough time to get my wife on the hook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did Did you ever think like, you know, when you look at it, how often do you look at yourself in the mirror? Like, you know what? George Clooney, George Clooney looks pretty much like that's pretty much Clooney hair. No one's making fun of him.
1: No, you know, it's funny. You mentioned that because I think uh, I think there used to be such a stigma around gray hair that it was like it made you old. old. Yeah, and right. then like, what what happened was at some point, I mean, it worked out to my benefit. At some point, gray hair kind of became cool or distinguished. And so distinguished. I, was, I was like, "Whoa, okay, now that's working." <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I that's what I am is a distinguished gentleman.
0: that's it Uh, i haven't you know you and i've talked off and on for the better part of a couple years and i don't think i i haven't asked you this because normally you're the one asking me the questions about the cowboys and stuff what does your last name mean Ornberger?
1: what is that i remember looking it up a really really long time ago
0: you can make it up make it up yeah and
1: and i think it i think it means uh I I do think it means uh uh this is the truth. Gosh, I it would it's something like ba- Baron of Wood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you yeah. Yeah, got 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 <laughs>
0: <got to> <laughs> Baron of Wood. <laughs>
1: a, there's an entendre hidden there somewhere, yeah. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> no one could see that. Uh so Rich, how many years have you been out of the NFL now?
1: Uh, since 2014, so quick math six years, six years, six years.
0: Okay, so no, it's, no, it's eight. eight. I didn't want to be rude, <laughs> but it's eight, it's fine, don't worry about it. Um, when you left the NFL, you wrote well, it was after that when Andrew Luck retired, you wrote something that went viral about your injury history and what it took for you to play a game, and it was really well done and it was really revealing. and I recommend. Anybody look up Rich Orenberger, Baron of Wood and uh injury history and you can find it on google. It's really good um you're in your mid thirties now. How are you doing physically you know in in relation to all the injuries and surgeries that you you went you endured from your football career
1: I'm really good uh, I appreciate you asking it's It's such a subjective thing pain uh you know i think i feel to a greater or lesser extent pain uh every day Uh, it's just a matter of how much in the variety (laughs) you know sometimes it's uh you sleep funny on a shoulder both of which have been you know surgically repaired or you know you tweak your back picking up one of the kids which are they're getting bigger by the day man i got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and they're not getting any lighter and uh or or you know you you go hard at the beach, you know you're you're digging in the sand with the youngsters and all that stuff, or whatever it is. you know you could pay for things a little bit more uh as a younger man than maybe you would have had you gotten into finance or you know or or done some of the things that some of my buddies, my peers are up to these days but um but I wouldn't trade it for the world because the experiences uh, that I've, uh, gotten to enjoy while enduring some of the injuries that I had to suffer through. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I, I still sometimes kind of look back on all that and, and wonder if it's a life I actually lived. You know, it sort of feels like I read that book once and then put it down and I'm trying to remember bits and pieces from it for the book report. But, uh, but yeah, I, it's it, it's I'm good overall health wise. Like you know, you have good days and bad days like anybody else. But I'm I'm good.
0: You played five seasons, and when I was look, I'm never quite sure about this one because I don't know what the qualifications are. Did you play long enough to qualify for the NFL's long-term pension and all of those different benefits that come with playing either four seasons or a certain number of games on the active roster?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, it, it, you know, and I didn't even realize it un, until I had a teammate who leaned over to me during my fourth year, like halfway through my fourth season in the NFL and goes, uh, hey, how many how many years have you been in yet? And I'm like, uh, four. I said, this is my fourth season. And he goes, congratulations. I'm like, what do you mean? And it was exactly four games in. Uh four five games into my fourth season, he goes, You're fully vested, you're fully accrued, you're you get everything retirement than any of anybody else would. And I was like, Oh my god. And you you know, when you first start, you hear about pensions and you hear about things like that. And you know, your hope is just to keep in the league long enough, especially as a fourth rounder, just just survive the roster cuts and stick stick around long enough or start a whole bunch of games and be undeniable to last that long. But I didn't even realize it, and um, yeah, it's important. It's an important threshold to cross, because uh, as you know, uh, but many many people might not. Um, if you if you don't get fully vested, you don't enjoy all the post career benefits um, that comes with you know some of the pension things and the the HRA accounts or you know some of the medical benefits. So it's it's an important threshold to get beyond and. And yeah, what's funny is I only played five seasons because I spent uh, a full season on IR before they changed the rules where you could come back off the IR. Um, but it counts; it count uh, an injured reserve year counts towards your vestments, so that helped.
0: Rich, in your estimation, how many guys that did you play with were were smart about their money and and smart about what they needed to look beyond because you're a bright guy. I've, I followed you for a long time, you know, just in social media worlds and you were, you're kind of a player an ex player who stood out as, as someone who was probably aware when they were younger, how many teammates did you have who just had no clue about how, how quickly six figures or seven figures can turn into zero?
1: Oh man. Uh, A lot, you know, and it's a, it's a sad reality. A lot of them did, I think actually we don't cheerlead loud enough the success stories where guys spun off a successful NFL career or or a career into um, building a business uh, that they're proud of or, you know, further educating themselves and getting into the, the career or the job that they always hoped that they would carry even before football uh, factored into that thought process. And but there are also those, those tragic stories of guys who had immense wealth and just didn't know what to do with it and squandered it. I'm fortunate because, be, honestly, and it's not because I'm an intelligent guy or anything like that, because I don't even think that's... I think I listen. I think I'm a pretty quick learner and I listen, especially when I think somebody's smarter than me. I shut up and I listen um because i i wasn't financially literate when i came into the nfl i had only ever received paychecks under the table i barely had an active uh um bank account <laughs> by the time i graduated college uh and i'll like i'll give you a story just to exemplify how completely illiterate i was uh i got my signing bonus um for being a fourth rounder in two large chunks and that's pretty typical. Sometimes if it's a small enough signing bonus, they'll just give it to you in one payment. Sometimes it could be agreed to by you in the club that it's going to be one payment. But a lot of rookies, you know, you're not negotiating like when they're going to pay you. You're just happy to be paid. And I was one of those. So they gave it to me in two chunks. One was in the spring at some point, And then the other one was a couple of games into the fall or something like that. That first check that I got came... In May, I want to say. And I had received the check. And the first thing I did is I called my financial advisor. And he wasn't around, I guess, or didn't answer the phone right away. And I'm sitting in the car and I'm staring at this check. And, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I am floored. I'm just, what do I do with this? I I, I, I didn't leave the parking lot until I heard from my financial advisor. <laughs> Were you scared? I, but, well, not scared, but it was more like, do I bring this to a normal bank? Like I, like I called him up and, and, and that was my intention. The phone goes, so he finally calls me back. I'd made my way back to my apartment, but he goes, he goes, Hey, what's going on? I was like, Hey, you know, I just want to let you know, I got my, my signing bonus check. And you know, it's a pretty big check. I was like, so uh, do I, do I just like put in the regular mail and send it to you? Or do I, uh, do I FedEx it? Like, do I need a special envelope? And he's like, why would you do that? And I'm just like, well, I mean, I don't know. I was like, you know, because on your end, then you guys will put in my account or, you know, go through whatever proper channels. And he and he just sounded there was like all these pauses on the phone as he was trying to understand how little I knew about all this. And he <laughs> goes, Rich, he was like, you could you could bring it to the bank. I was like, well, well what bank? And he goes, well, where do you bank? And I was like, you mean, like, where do I have a checking account? And he goes, yeah, Rich. And I was like, oh, uh, Bank of America. And he goes, yeah, so bring it to Bank of America. He was like, look, I'm pulling up your file right now. He was at home, you know, so he's like pulling up my file on his computer from home to get to his work. And he was like, yeah, yeah. He was like, OK, bring it to Bank of America. He was like, tell them to put in your checking. And he gave me the last four numbers of that account he was like tell him to put in that that account he goes and then it'll clear in a couple of days you'll be all right. i said is that all i have to do i just bring it to him and he goes have you ever deposited a check before and i said no and he goes well you're gonna all right he was like flip over the check <laughs> you know so you <laughs> ever endorsed a check <laughs> I never endorsed a check in my life. It was literally walking me. I was like, okay, R I C H. You know, I, I mean, legit. No, but so, anyways. But but that's that's the platitude that a lot of start at because I grew up working in a deli in high school, cutting cold cuts for people on Sundays. You know, probably eating my paycheck in food, uh, and getting paid in cash and in an envelope. So I had I had zero and the only money that ever hit my account was my parents moving transferring money from their Bank of America account into mine during my college years. Like when I ran out of toilet paper or I lied about that and needed beer money. Uh, so so that was That was the extent of financial literacy I had. And I I was fortunate to surround myself with people who really understood how to invest appropriately and how to budget appropriately. And um, I I, I, there weren't too many requests of me from family members, which is a huge, huge part of this, because you feel you feel indebted to the people who help you get to where you are and you see a lot of guys get taken advantage of because of that. And I'm just, I really look, I'm not a smart guy when it came to money. I, I think of myself as much, much more educated now. Um, but at that point in my life, absolutely not. And I'm i am pretty sure I could have very easily been taken advantage of and been a statistic, but I was fortunate that I had good people around me. Uh,
0: I normally tiptoe around this question with former players but I think you'll be honest about it. Is steroid use and HGH use prevalent in the National Football League or in major college football?
1: I'm sure it is, and this is the God's honest truth. I haven't been around a lot of it, which is, it probably sounds odd, but I have to imagine if once you dive into that world, yeah, like I'm sure you you find out, a lot of guys, you know what I mean, do. Yeah. But I never, I was always so afraid of getting caught. And uh, I don't get me wrong, that was mainly the reason. Like, if there, if there was a way to guarantee me that going through any lengths would make me just an infinitesimal amount better than the guy across from me, I probably would have partaken. But I was so terrified of, of staining all the hard work that I had done that with that rule in place... I just I just didn't wanna even bother taking the chance. But look, I mean it's obvious based on the PED testing every year, somebody gets popped for something they're not supposed to be taking. So there is a culture of that in football, in college football. But because I didn't partake, I, I really I really didn't know too many people who are actively doing it. I would only hear stories of guys who were. So there is 100% going to be guys in every single locker room, and this is at the college level and the pro level doing it. I just wasn't exposed to it all that often.
0: Or do, you, do, all. You, do you care? I mean, do you care if guys are using it? No. I
1: don't know. <laughs> I mean, now, here's the way I look at it. We, we all cheat. We all cheat a little bit. Like, there's margins everywhere. Like, I held – I was an offensive lineman. There's rules that say you're not allowed to hold. And I held on every single play I played, and I promise you that, Mac, every single play. And I got away with it most of the times, and sometimes I didn't. Now, if I was a much better player, would, would my holding calls keep me out of the Hall of Fame one day? No. Um, but but so those were, what's the word? Those That was the risk I was willing to take. Um, there are certain guys who that's the risk they're willing to take is, if I could just be good enough to earn this money on this next contract, if I could be just a hair stronger, recover a little bit faster from this injury or run a little bit faster, you know, then, 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 and they're willing to take the risk of getting caught. And I just, I just never was. So I, I don't look at them as bad people and I don't really mind that they're doing it. I, I just, I just could never,
0: you know, I don't really care anymore if a guy does it. I don't know if I ever really care. The thing that concerns me, and you're a dad, I think the thing that concerns me is that the 16-year-old who doesn't know any better, and he gets his hands on it, and he's doing it, and he might be doing some real damage to his body at, at an important developmental stage of his life. But I don't know how you possibly, I, mean, I know you're like, well, oh, parents, do your job. There's a lot of good parents out there trying to do their job. I just don't know how you police that.
1: Yeah, you, you, that's I mean, I, I wish I would have tagged my answer with with that part because I completely agree with everything you just said. I think I think I don't really mind any of it for an adult. You're making decisions. I mean, look, if you're old enough to pick up a gun and go fight for this country, you know, and you're crazy enough to play this sport of football that I fell in love with. And you got to be somewhat crazy to play it um, and you're willing to risk whatever long-term health effects you know could could come from using steroids illicitly during that career i'm not going to get in your way and i don't think i really care but i i do appreciate that point you just made about kids and about how athletes are role models and especially professional athletes there's no question that i looked up to michael jordan when i was a kid i was playing driveway basketball if you asked me when i was 12 what sport i was going to play professional basketball i was convinced of it
0: I'm a little you surprised know. you didn't make it thank <laughs> no, you thank you yeah, thank you. yeah. <laughs> because coach screwed <laughs> you
1: just keep in playing look, time when you look at my body type there's the no doubt you think is shooting guard <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> look at luka Doncic. oh no yeah no i mean that guy's a bull I, I mean but even him right like what a fascinating um and and kind of I guess the best way to call him is like this unicorn, like, you know, the size and the strength and the ability and the balance. And that's why I looked at Jordan when I was a kid. I'm sure a lot of kids who grew up in the nineties looked at him that way. And you're just, I mean, I grew up in New York. My father was a New York Knicks fan and I had Chicago bulls starter jackets and Chicago bulls bedspread. And, you know, and, and if I would have found out that he cheated to get to where he was, I'm sure You know, and it it was explained to me that way, I'm sure it would have changed my whole opinion on it. Right. You know, and it would have it would have it would have tainted, you know, how how I did model. I can't I I had the tongue out in the driveway. I'm shooting, you know, the layups and, you know, everything. I'm sure it would have had some sort of effect. So that that is the one aspect of all of this conversation that I completely agree with you and I'm raising two young sons now, and one day they're going to get into sports and maybe have some sort of clue as to what dad did. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I hope I hope those guys they look up to, uh, they do it, you know, quote-unquote, the right way, and they never get involved in all that stuff.
0: You played in New England. You played with Bill Belichick. You played with Tom Brady, uh, both of whom have reputations that, are unlike few others in, in sports, really, who was more intimidating to be in a meeting room with Bill Belichick or Tom Brady
1: without a question, Bill Belichick, but Tom was intimidating because it snuck up on you with Tom, like meeting him. He was such a kind and warm human being. Like you talked to him in the the weight room. He knew your name immediately. He knew the name of every single person Uh who walked through the door in the facility it almost felt like it was his job to be like the facility greeter. Like, did he get a bonus for that? Like
0: it's <laughs> like a Walmart greeter.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. He put on the vest and he was out front and, like, <laughs> put the back in the cart cart corral. Yeah. It was just like, I, yeah. I mean, he, he just was every detail mattered to him, including making sure to know who the incoming rookies were, even if they were going to be just warm bodies for training camp, he didn't care. He knew who you were. And so as a result, um, you form this automatic respect and kinship with him uh, and respect for him. Now, once you got to the playing field, if you were being relied on in any capacity and it didn't matter if you were going to be, um, you know, snapping the football to him or on the offensive line with the starting group and blocking for him, or if you with, one of the other guys, you know, like you know, backup quarterback, whatever it was, you know, he would call you out directly if he knew that you screwed stuff, screwed stuff up. He would, he would point it out to you, and be like, "All right, we got to go to, uh, you know, we got to do it again because we're not picking up Sam blitzes anymore." You know, and you're just like, "Wait, what?"
0: And then well, would he call out a guy by
1: name, or was it? The- oh yeah, oh, he would. Okay, yeah. I mean, and you know, and and I think he he did it more to the guys he knew he could do it to. So put everybody else on warning. Meaning if you if he had you designed as a guy who is mentally tough enough, um, like for example, like a Julian Adam, who I he would scream his name, you know, Jules, you know, and like it would be this, you know, ba, you know, it's like, you know, safety's coming down this side, you gotta break back out, and it's gotta be now. Again, let's go, let's go. And you know, and then just like a coach, you're lining back up and you know. He usurped the offensive coordinator to run the play again because he wants it perfect, because he wants the timing down so he knows that hot route's going to be there or that option route, you know, the the correct option was chosen, whatever. It, it was Every detail was important to him because, obviously, I had jumped in the fray in 2009, so he had been there 10 years already, won three Super Bowls. He had known exactly how important every single one of those practice moments were and how fleeting they are. You can't just say, oh, you know what? We'll correct it in the film room. No, right now, right now. We got the time right now. And while, you know, especially with a young guy, like while your brain is still making all of these connections and let's learn it right way the first time this way. If, if it screwed up later on, it's on you. Because not only did you steal away the rep where you screwed it up the first time, but you made us do it a second time. And if you screwed up in the game, you've screwed us and it's your fault. That's the level of accountability you felt like was coming down on you when Tom Brady was on the field and calling you out for anything, right? Now, Bill, there was less of a comfort, like because there was a huge professional buffer between you and Bill as a player to a coach. You know, at least I felt that way. Now, he had a personality, and I he would be very willing to chop it up with you a little bit, you know, here and there, but it was mostly business and so it was difficult to know exactly where you stood with him so your goal every single day was just just don't get called out by him you know just you know be be memorable because you're one of the guys who shows up and does it right every single day you don't want to show up on the the screen in the team meeting room when he puts up some low lights from a practice game from a practice or a game because that was that was the absolute worst
0: Rich I had a friend of mine who knows him a little bit on a personal level and said he's obviously a very, very bright guy, but he said the best way that he thought to describe him was that he was a little bit of a social misfit. Um, you could take that in a lot of different ways. Do you feel like that was a fair characterization of his personality that just socially he's just a little awkward
1: he's found uh he's found his his perfect little rabbit hole, right mm-hmm. you know i mean football when it when it when it comes to football. It's savantism with Bill Belichick. It's it's like, you know, it's like going to one of those movies where they're 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 playing the, uh, you know, the montage of the 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 tortured genius who's going through all the paperwork and and then you know taking the test or you know some musician who just looks at the keys on a piano and just like you know where, where the rest of us see a box with you know strings and keys they see music like that's that i think you know just the way he was raised by his dad um and who was a football man and a historian at, at least as as it you know it's been described to me i've never met him but um he fell right into that pathway man and uh and so in in his realm like when you talk football with him you there's there's no like he knows everything. you know what I mean so every question you have can be answered. if you're intelligent enough to like hang on the level with him, like you could go as deep and as far as you want to if if you know a little bit about history, he'll educate you even further than you could ever imagine. but i I think that's that's it that's the most comfortable place for him to exist. And so that's the reason why he's made a career out of it. I mean, and it's become a family affair, you know, now his son's on the coaching staff. And I think, I think to a certain extent, I'm sure he feels most comfortable commuting, communicating with his dad, the same way he bill communicated with his dad through the language of football.
0: Uh, you know, you played for three different organizations. You go from new England to San Diego when they were still in San Diego, you spent a year with the Cardinals too. does, I think people like me in the media make a lot out to do with this. And I I don't know if we really know what we're talking about sometimes, because I think some just depends on the particular reporter. We can get kind of close, but you played for him. Is there really that much difference between one NFL organization and another, or are they kind of the same?
1: Oh yeah. It's they're so different. Yeah. Just from. Logistically, how they handle certain things, uh, the level of importance that they put on certain things, and it could be things that, you know, you you may not, you may not even think of, like, you know, how how we're gonna execute our travel plan. You know, there are certain teams I I was on where nothing was explained, and you just sort of followed the herd, you know, because everybody's been used to it. And then there are certain you know head coaches who would literally take meeting time to explain exactly how everything is going to go from the moment, you know, you leave the practice field to packing your bags for the equipment trainers to, you know, the TSA pre-screening to the food that's going to be available to you on the travel. Like, it's, it really is through the lens of what head coach you have. And then also the, the level of contribution the owner is willing to make because, you know, you look at it from any business standpoint, Um, you walk into certain chain restaurants and certain regional owners, they, they run a really good shop and, you know, and it just feels like the service is better and the food's better and the environment's cleaner, you know, and then other regions, the other regions or other restaurants you walk into, even though it's under this banner, this national restaurant chain banner, you have a terrible experience and the bathrooms are dirty. Like, It's the same thing with these 32 NFL franchises. You know, there are certain places that really pay attention to details and there's others that don't. And sometimes it's it's incumbent on the head coach. Sometimes the head coach is fighting the tide. Sometimes the head coach is getting more involvement from the owner than they want. You know, it just depends on the owner, the relationship he wants with the team, with the the head coach, with the coaching staff. And uh, it varies wildly from one team to the next.
0: When you played in the league, you played in playoff games, you played in a Super Bowl. After the game starts, ball goes up in the air, first and 10 on the 20. Does the game feel any different than week 15 in the regular season or week five? Once you get into the actual game, even if it says wild card, divisional round, Super Bowl, any of it?
1: Not really. No. Uh, Yeah, that's a that's actually a really interesting thing about um sports like it, also that's part part of the reason why i was so drawn to sports is i felt like there was a real peace when you are so completely focused on the task at hand like there's such a quiet in your brain even though it's such an insanely loud and physical and violent sport especially football uh, and but all sports are that way. I mean, basketball, there's whistles blowing the 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 sneakers are screeching. you have fans in the background. I mean, baseball, you're dealing with just ambient noise constantly. but for whatever reason, as soon as you're it's your turn to be on the field, it's your job to be on the field. You just get locked into this place that I'll never be able to replicate again. You just get lost. You just get completely lost the The closest thing that I'll compare to for somebody who's trying to understand what it feels like is you know a lot of people play video games and I sort of feel like they get lost the same yeah. way half we can like you sit in front of that screen and all of a sudden you know you started playing and it, the the sun was out and then all of a sudden it's 10 o'clock at night and you're like whoa what happened like time just sort <laughs> yes. of disappears and that's what being in a game and honestly I don't have a, a particularly strong photographic memory like if you start you, you kind of have to start me down the path to get me remembering certain plays in a game. You know, there are certain guys who remember every single moment. They remember the time on the clock, how many timeouts we had. They remember, you know, which, which safety was moving down toward the line of scrimmage. They had this conversation with the official right before the ball was snapped. It's like, how do you remember all that? For me, it was this, it was this opportunity to just concentrate on one thing at a time with all of my energy, what, my mental bandwidth. And so, yeah, even in the biggest of moments in my career, it was just another play. It was another play. It was another play. It was another play. It, the, you lose sight of the moment and you just get trapped into the game.
0: You recently made, uh, told a story about when you were at the Patriots and went viral uh, about electing to get into a car crash rather than be late for a Patriots practice and incur the wrath of Bill Belichick. Uh, when you did get in that wreck, I love the story, by the way. It's the most original thing I've ever heard in my life. But there was one part of like, how much damage did you do to the car? Like, there was there any part of a cost-benefit analysis? You're like, okay, I'm going to get fined $1,000 if I'm late. But if I wreck this car, it's only going to be $350. Like, did you do any of that math in your head at
1: all? Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Oh my, oh, my gosh. I'm so glad. This is the first person. I've talked about this a lot over the past month, because you're right, I was just doing my radio show yeah. and telling this story like I would, because I think I mean, somebody got caught speeding. I think it was Marquise Brown. Marquise Brown got caught speeding during um, Arizona Cardinals training camp, and he got caught at, like, 7 a.m. on a Wednesday. <laughs> I was like,
0: buddy. And he was, was flying, by the way. yeah,
1: Oh, yeah, dangerous, right? Yep. But Buddy wasn't coming home from a party or anything like that. He was late for practice. And so I was like, look, I've been there. And I began telling the story. But yeah, when I was rolling down that hill and realized I looked at the clock on my car, I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to be late by 10 minutes. Like, there's just no conceivable way I get there. Even by the skin of my teeth, there's no chance it's over. My career's potentially over. I start thinking about the deli I was telling you about cutting kind of cold cuts again. Like I figure I'm gonna have like a marble red hanging out of the corner of my mouth. I'm gonna be, you know, what? hucking somebody's baloney, just telling them about, yeah, I once had a chance with the Patriots. Like, you know, it was, that was that was gonna be my life. Like that are flashing before your eyes. And then as it dawns on me that maybe, maybe if I'm as I'm cruising down this hill hill, I get into enough of a car accident to justify pulling the cars over to the side of the road, that that would be a valid enough excuse to escape accountability for my lateness. Maybe this will work. And then I'm, as I'm cruising into this bumper, I'm looking at my speedometer. I'm looking at my speedometer. I'm just thinking like, all right, 10 miles an hour feels perfect. And then at the last second, I kind of kicked the wheel even more to the left because it was off the passenger side bumper where I was going to make contact. Because I didn't want to damage my fog light. That's how much attention I was paying to, paying to what I was doing. And so a perfect, like, basketball-sized dent in the front bumper, right on the plastics apart. It just caved in perfectly. And by the way, the van I hit showed zero damage. <laughs> I, I don't right on this like 1980s astrovan rusted you know metal bumper this this thing, this whole van it looked like it had been through you know I, I don't even know a war it was just it was dilapidated but uh we pull over and the the part of the story that i the one part of the story that still to this day i feel the worst about was when i have like a, a visceral feeling like i can feel my mm-hmm. the belly dropping out right now when I realized it was this this tiny ancient old man who creeped oh. out of the front of the car, I'm just like, golly, you know, he had to be like 78, 80 years old, a little bit hunched. He had this big white beard. And he asked for Santa Claus. I think it was Santa or his brother. You know what I mean? Like, and I look and I know I'm going straight to hell because, like, as soon as this happened, like the, the heavens opened up and the new england skies start pouring torrential rain on top of us and i'm just thinking like this is i'm like i'm about to get struck by lightning like this is what this is what happens to sinners and here it comes but i helped father time back to his car and i gave him every dollar in my pocket i had a few hundred bucks and uh and thanked him profusely and he had no idea why i was like listen i was like i'm late for work i was like but you have no idea how great it was to meet you. I I mean, hundreds of dollars, just like, here you go. Spend it on the car, spend it on yourself. I hope you have a wonderful day and a (laughs) wonderful rest of your life. Uh,
0: That's a great story. I'm not going to, I don't, I don't know. There was one other thing I want to ask you about because you're in the media now, you're a player and players during their careers usually will develop feelings about the media, usually specific members. Uh, some guys don't want to talk at all. Some guys do. Uh, I'm not sure what you're, you know, the, the Patriots percept, the Patriots relationship, with the media, because of, because of Belichick's, uh, that reputation has always been kind of frosty and just don't give them anything. Don't say anything. Um, you know, now that you're on the other side of this big giant circus, what would you, how would you critique, uh, the media that covers, and and it by extension markets the NFL. Like what do we do well? And what do you say? You guys suck. You're way wrong here, here, and here.
1: Um boy, that's such a good question, too. I guess where it starts is even even when you're dealing with a player in uh in a locker room atmosphere, it's not the zoo. You know what I mean? Like it's it these are people who may have just had a tough practice or may have something serious going on at home that they're not sharing, you know? So there's this automatic um, familiarity that a lot of members of the media have with players where they're allowed to walk right up into your personal space. They don't have to ask if, you know, you really want to talk or it's not really your choice. Like, as they're saying – Hey, could, could I get you for, for three minutes? The cameraman's already got the camera up on his shoulder and the lights are on and you're in your towel and you're like, yeah, let me throw a shirt on. You know, it's just like, you know, and if you don't, you're, you know, you're the jerk. Yeah. And so that was one of the things that you saw a lot. the The guys and the women who went out of their way to establish a relationship with you who came over to you and just chopped it up with you, BS with you, even when they weren't looking for a scooper story just because they saw you from across the room just like, Hey, you know, you remember we were talking about um you played lacrosse, right? You, okay. I'm glad I remember that way because my, my nephew just started playing it. Everything he said is true. Like, you know, he loves it. And you know, it's physical enough and you know, soccer was too boring. And all of a sudden you're like, man i'm connecting with somebody with a person it's not just a job it's like how you would treat a coworker and that's that's what we are the media and athletes you're truly coexisting together because obviously the media um has uh anybody who works in the media i should say has a a job to tell to tell the story of the fan of the player to the fan or the fan back to the player frankly because we read it too um and and our job part of our job description is to is to work well with that with that arm of 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 the business and so that's one of the things is never lose sight of the fact that you're dealing with people um i think especially with football i think that ca- that gap feels wider because we it is such a gladi- gladiatorial sport especially at that level i think sometimes I think sometimes it's it's difficult for people to to treat us more than like my goodness these are like like mercenaries they're going out there and it's like you know who knows if this guy is even going to be available next week he could tear his his knee apart this this week so i better i better get talking to him right now it's just so but to, to never lose sight of the fact that you're you're dealing with people and then the longer you talk to somebody Almost always, because everybody has a story to tell. You're going to unearth something you didn't know and something fascinating or something interesting. And, you know, I, that, that, would, I, that would be the biggest critique. And frankly, it's one that even as a former athlete, you know, I have to remind myself, like, when you walk in, the first thing you need to talk to, say to these guys is, you know, introduce yourself mm-hmm. and connect with them on a personal level before you do anything professional.
0: Rich, I could talk to you all day. Uh, I really appreciate your time and how interesting and forthright and funny you are. Thank you very much.